And you'll be opening your Bibles to the book of Acts. And uh, Pastor Andy uh, quoted a verse this morning to start it off. And I think, uh, I think I preached on this verse at some point early in the ministry here. But uh, in the reverence of Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, excuse me, at his temple. And uh, that is a great verse because for all of us, the, the one thing we, we ought to desire is communion with the Lord and to be in his presence. Everything else is just is gravy on top of that. I don't know about you, but I, I think I'm a kind of simple person, um, at least uh, I hope I am, uh, because, and I say that to say that I, I don't want to be distracted by a lot of things. Now, I'm interested in a lot of things, and I'm easily distracted, um, but I want my focus and my purpose to be single-hearted and single-minded. And what we're going to see here in this passage today, um, and, and I've got an odd name, and this is just an on-the-fly call out to... To my sister up there running the, the slides, forget point two, not even getting there, not even going to try to get there, forget all the application things, just don't worry about it. I changed everything last night and this morning, so she has no clue. So uh, bless her heart. Thank you, though. Just just hang with me. You'll know what I'm doing. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I want you to see is this is a very long text. So I put Matthew, I mean Matthew, Acts 5. 12 to 42 up there. Today we're going to look at 12V through 14. So what happened to 12A? Isn't that important? Yes, it is. We'll come back and get that next week, okay? But what happens is, as Luke is writing, he says something, and then he goes off on this, because us preachers do this, and Luke wasn't even a preacher, and he did it, a parenthetical thought, and then he comes back to what he said to start with. So I'm going to go to the big first thought, even though the first thing he said is not the very first thing. You get it. Okay. So having said that, uh, what I was talking about simplicity and single focus and single-mindedness, uh, I'm also talking about consistency. There's several words here, purity, di- uh, discipline, or discipleship, um, and, and then that single focus, that single-mindedness. And, and even people that study like children's development and things realize that what a child needs is consistency. That a child coming out of a bad home but is consistently bad has a better chance than a kid that came out of sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. We never know what mom and dad are going to do. So consistently good, of course, is really good. Consistently bad is better than unsuredness. And even as adults, we're like that. We kind of want to know. And you say, well, I'm not sure about that, really. What if you walked into your job tomorrow and... Right now, everything is really good at your job. And tomorrow, your boss just walked in and goes, oh, by the way, you're fired. I thought you didn't, you thought consistency wasn't important. <laughs> you see, when there's a drastic change you don't see coming, we call what develops in that is called PTSD. When, when you don't know, is your life in danger? Is it not? Am I going to be attacked? Am I okay? When that is constant in your life, it creates certain things that makes it hard to just function even. And, and so children need consistency. But here's the deal is when you can trust the person that is in charge, let's say, be it a parent, a boss, in the military, some rank above you, and you see a consistency 
it frees you up to do whatever it is that God asks you to do or whatever it is you can do. It sets you free when there's consistency. We think of consistency or, or borders or rules or as limiting. And, oh, I, I don't want anybody tell me what to do. I don't want God to tell me what to do. But when, when there are parameters around what we do, now we are free to actually do the thing we wanted to do to start with, to, to, to be able to obey God, to be able to do the right thing. I guess kind of what I'm driving at is that, that in... The church, we see things that need to be done, but sometimes we try to focus on that one thing instead of on the real problem. Because what we're seeing is called a symptom. Did you know, in all the things that we've been able to do, we've never been able to cure the common cold. Y'all realize that? You know why? The cold virus is not consistent. It mutates constantly. It mutates and mutates and mutates. And so whatever immunities you built up to the last cold you got will not help you in the next cold you're going to get. Are you following me there? And so we can't cure it. We can't. But all we can do is treat the right. So we take decongestants or whatever you take, you know, pain pills and, you know, like a, a, a sedimentifer or whatever, just to, just to get through, to function in the pain. And sometimes that's true in our life, is the life of a church. We, we try to apply band-aids to gaping wounds, and it doesn't help. We've got to address the problem. And what we're seeing in this passage is that one of those problems has been addressed, and the result is purity and unity in the church. And that, that's kind of what I want you to catch in this passage. Let me, let me just say that precedence helps us in discipline. You following that? That's why I'm talking about consistency. If we have a precedence and that precedence is followed consistently, it makes everybody else know what's happening and then they can make a, a, a more in, in intelligent choice. I think about our own children. I took me a long time to get to what I wanted to say to begin with. I think about our own children because as a parent, we're called to discipline our children. Now, some of you, when I say that word, you have horrible thoughts and you recoil in fear because you were abused, not disciplined. And some think discipline, don't even know what discipline really means. Discipline means to disciple them or to help them to be able to have self-control. You follow that? Okay, now I'm going to say something that's dangerous. Thank you, baby. My, my wife amen me. Thank you. Uh, usually she says, oh man, instead of amen, but that's okay. Um, it's dangerous what I'm about to say because some today you can get in trouble sometimes uh, for physically applying some discipline. I always found the proper application uh, of, of force to pain receptors was a great, great help. Um, so, uh, but I'm not talking about beating our, your child. We never discipline one of our children without explaining the offense and then saying this is what that's going to cost. And then restoring that relationship, loving them, hugging them, letting them know they are loved. And then giving them privacy to get themselves together before they came back into general society, meaning our family. And that's how God does it. He pulls us into private. He says, look, this is what's messed up. I'm going to fix, help you fix that. And when he gets it fixed, he loves us, lets us know we're his. And then we get back out there and do what we need to do. I remember the first time my oldest child, and I'm always in trouble when I talk about our kids, but... Thankfully, they're all married and gone. They won't even know I said this. But 
Our oldest daughter was only around three, maybe four. And our younger daughter, she was still pretty young, a year and a half or so. And, and I, I'm not sure exactly their ages, but sometimes I would give them their bath. And, and uh, so that was one of those ca- uh, cases. And the younger daughter was small enough, I had to kind of keep a hand on her. And of course, I wanted to control the older one so she didn't slip in herself in the tub. And so Savannah stood up in the tub. Well, you don't stand up in the tub or a rowboat, by the way. And I knew, she, oh, she's in danger. I said, sit down. And she started down. And she got right here, and I could see it on her face. It was like it changed. And she went, no. I didn't bother to explain the offense. <laughs> and I didn't hurt her. I promised what I did did not cause any pain, but it did cause shock. Because next thing she knew was... And it was just little pops on her bottom. It wasn't, like I said, I didn't even make a red mark. It wasn't hard, but she sat down. She, t- she will tell you to this day she remembers that. And she will tell you today, because she told me time and time again, I remember having the thought, what would he do if I said no? She was a three or four. Now, I don't know if that makes her really intelligent or that speaks to you that wickedness is born in a child. And the Bible says, and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. But guess what happened? It set a precedence. And there was consistency. And so you didn't have to do that a lot. In in fact, we had a third child, Ian. Ian almost never needed any discipline of that sort. Because his sisters would say, don't do that. Mom and dad will not like that. And occasionally, of course, just being a human being, he'd kind of, you know, get kind of full of himself. And, and we wouldn't even have to administer physical. We could just kind of tell him how disappointed or not disappointed, but let him know. And man, he'd become the sweetest guy in the world for a long time because he wanted to do the right thing. And as Christians, we should want to do the right thing, right? But we should not despise discipline, it says in Hebrews, that we should accept the discipline of the Lord. We should learn from that. So that we can learn. Because guess who the potter is and guess who the clay is? He's the potter, we're the clay. And so he molds us the way he wants. And when he has to remake us, sometimes he does that. And a wise old man told me when I was a young man, he only ever had one disagreement with his children or one argument with his children. And that was to decide who is daddy. And once they decided who was daddy, it settled all the other arguments. Friend, God is our father. And it, call, it behooves us as, as a body of believers to realize he's in charge and we're not. And that we're to follow him, not our own will and our own desires, right? And so, what I have that I want you to remember before we stand up and read these couple of verses is, click, you can go ahead and put the statement up even though it's, there we go. Discipline brings effectiveness to purpose. We have a purpose in the church, but without discipline, the purpose is pointless. We have to be disciplined to accomplish the purpose. If your goal is to hit a home run, you don't do that by just, unless you're Babe Ruth, eating hot dogs and drinking things you shouldn't drink, and then getting up and, and, and hitting the ball. He could do that back in his day. You can't do that now. You've got to stay disciplined. These modern professional athletes are disciplined year-round and practice and practice. They're consistent and they're disciplined year-round so they can bring effectiveness to their purpose. I, I, I got this as a parenthesis, but I remember Pastor Andy uh, was saying 
how that while we slept, angels were worshiping, and that set my mind reeling, because guess what? When it's dark here, it's light on the other side of the world. This is our perspective, right? And, and some country singers, and, and I know their names, but they did a song, and it was about drinking. They said it's five o'clock somewhere. But if you think about that, God, the Bible says, never sleeps. It's always the right time to worship Him, right? It's worship time somewhere. And that's where we are, anytime. Just a thought. It just kind of helped me there, actually, to say, that's right. Anytime is time to worship. Well, let's read these verses. Would you stand up with me? Acts chapter 5, verses 12. I'm going to read the whole verse of 12, but we're going to start thinking about 12 in the second half. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, that's an exciting thing. All right, it's very exciting. We'll come back to that next week. Here's where we'll start the sermon today. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Would you pray with me? Father God, in Jesus' name, again, we step into your presence because your word is true and we are liars. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would be manifested in our life. Your word would, would, would take residence in our heart, that we would mold our lives around the teaching of your word, and that the meditation of our heart, the words of our mouth, would be acceptable in thy sight, and that our lives would mirror the very life of Christ through us. We ask that individually. We ask that for Calvary Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. In the, in, in the passage I want to focus on, we see this unity of purpose, this unity, unity uh, of, of desire. Now, remember the setting. We just finished about Ananias Sapphire. God killed those guys, or man and a woman. I'm a southerner. A woman's not a guy. Uh, killed that couple. And, and as I've thought about this, because I, I, I was thinking about a lot of things about discipline, and uh, I, I was discussing this uh, with, with Janice and, and I was saying, you know, like, well, discipline is for love and restoration. She goes, well, where did they get that? <laughs> God just took them out. But remember what Peter did. He asked them, is, is this true? And they lied. There was the point where they go, no, that's not true. Here's what we actually did. Now, I gr- granted, they didn't get a lot of opportunity. But, and, and, and why we think that's, you know, like, oh man, God didn't even give them a chance, is because of the society we truck in. I, how, you may have said this, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I, I've heard parents say, you know, Johnny, sit down. Johnny, sit down. If I count to three, one, two. I always said, Johnny, sit down, three, pow, Okay. So they learned when I said it is when I meant for you to do it. Now, they also learned that if they, I said it and they felt like they couldn't, they could say, Dad, can you give, I got it, okay. They would explain why I can't immediately obey. You say, well, that seems cruel. Well, how many times your child pulled out from you holding their hand, they ran out into a parking lot? And you say, stop, and they're used to you saying it three times and then counting to three. And so they keep running right out in the way of a car. You see, discipline brings joy. So I could say, stop, boom, they hit the brakes. I saw Savannah and Stephen doing this with their kids the other day in, 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 in Israel, where they played, they made it a game. Stop, go, 
stop, go, because they got to cross streets. They walk everywhere they go. So they were teaching her. When they said stop, you just stop. And you don't argue. And sometimes God comes to us and goes, stop. And we go, uh, he doesn't really mean that. Stop. I, nah, he's just kidding. God said, don't do this. Do it this way. And Peter said, did you do it this way? And then they lied. There was their t- God said it. He didn't have to repeat it. So many times say, you know, the Bible says this ten times. If God said it once, that should be enough, right? I mean, if he says it repeatedly, you really should better pay attention. But if he said it once, you really should pay attention. Because he's God, he's Father. Somebody help me. And so Ananias said, Father, they did have a chance to repent. They did have a chance, but they weren't asked. Now, I know you, I know you messed up, and I know you didn't want to. I know you want to be a good boy and girl. No, God said, did you do that? And they lied to God. And Peter said, you ain't lying to me, you're lying to God. Poof. Oh, sorry, dude. That was severe. And it says great fear fell on everybody, right? Then it follows that up with, and then signs and wonders will be done to the apostles. And so we'll come back to that. But check it out. They had a unity of mind and purpose. I want you to see this purity, this, what they did. They just got back to business. And, and, and 12b lets us know they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, I'm going to make a lot of assumptions out of that. And, but I, I want you to understand it, they're good assumptions. Solomon's portico was an area on the east side of the temple. The only thing standing of the temple that was there in Jesus' day is the western wall. We know it as the wailing walls where the Jewish people go and they pray against that wall. On the other side of that wall now is the Dome of the Rock. It's a holy site of Islam. And for the temple to be rebuilt, they would have to tear down that dome. You see the political problem as well as the spiritual problem there. So I'm not going to get into that. But just understand, on that other side of that wailing wall, on the east side of, of that wailing wall was a, a, an area. It was right next to the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles could be there. And then this was a place, and it's, in my version, it's called Solomon's Portico. If you're reading the King James, it says porch. And being Southerners, we know what a porch is. This wasn't a porch it's a portico. It's a little bit different. It's a big area, and it has columns, and this particular one had double columns, and it was a, a, a large enough area, and if you look in John 10, don't go there now, it's where Jesus is teaching at Solomon's portico. He's in a place where a lot of people can come, where even Gentiles could hear him, and it is there he made clear in John 10 that he is the Christ, and All the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him right there. And that's where he walked out from their midst. And he got away from them by the power of God. It's in this very place. So obviously Jesus went and he taught the disciples a lot there. Because he could talk about the religious people. He could talk about the temple. He could talk about... And he would say, you tear down this temple three days, I'll raise it again. Look at these guys and all their finery. But look at that widow giving less than a penny. She's giving more than them because she doesn't have anything left. They got a bunch left. Right? You remember all these stories? A lot of this is happening right here. So the disciples, where Jesus did it, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me, they go back there and they would meet and they would gather there and they would worship there and they did it every day. But there were other people out in homes, but these apostles would go there to teach. And so we see that they had a unity of mind and purpose because everyone is together in that teaching. Peter and John are teaching teachers who taught others, who, and it just was spreading out in the houses. They had a unity in their place and their teaching. It says there in that verse that they were all together in Solomon's portico. In Acts 2, it said that they were teaching daily. 
And they were learning. The people were listening and learning daily. So this is an ongoing thing. And as they're teaching, they're teaching a unified understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And I think that's where we mess up. We forget who Jesus is and what he's done. Now I want you to skip verse 13. I know it comes next in the scripture, and I think God had the better idea of putting it there, but he's going to allow me, I think, to skip over that verse for a moment. And look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's the result. Notice they've quit counting. They've quit keeping up with the number. Multitudes are being added. It's like, we can't even count them anymore. We saw 3,000. Then we saw another couple thousand. We know we had, five, it says, 5,000 men. Didn't, it didn't mention the women and children. Now it's just going, multitudes keep being added to the Lord. And so what do we desire as a church? I mean, I don't know about you, I desire to reach multitudes, don't you? Some people don't even want to reach their grandchildren. I know that because they insist on doing it the way they did it when they were kids, not knowing that their grandkids are living in a different society than they did. You follow me? Do you want your way or do you want to get God's will done? I'm telling you, it's different from when I was a kid. Some of the things I just described earlier about my own kids, it's different for them than it was for their kids. It was for them already. I mean, it's crazy how fast we're changing. Wouldn't you agree? And, 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 and all of that, we have to have a desire to reach people for Christ. So when I talk about reaching the city of Stanton, some of y'all go, man, that's a big task. Oh, I, I don't disagree, it is. But it, here it says multitudes. That means we quit counting, it's just a bunch of folks. I mean, it's a whole bushel basket full, you know. They just, and God has given extra on top of that. We just, we, we, like, we can't keep... We don't even know the number anymore. We, we can't count that high. We're running out of clay tablets trying to keep Sunday school roll. I mean, we just don't know anymore. Y'all are just looking at me so weird today. I, it's gone beyond what they can count. And so what do we do? As Baptists, man, we want to see that. I, I didn't even say as Christians. I, I hope as Christians, but as Baptist Christians, we really want to see that. Have y'all noticed that we all like to criticize people who don't do it the way we do? Or the way I like to say it, we like to criticize people that sin differently than we sin? Yeah, they're complaining about, they're, they're pointing their finger at us, we're pointing our finger at them. We don't, we don't ever say, you know what, we're both wrong, we're both right, let's get together on what we're right about and go forward with the Lord, amen? Uh, that, that seems to be a problem. But these folks were, were united, and, and in verse 14 multitudes are being saved. So as Baptists, what do we do? We come up with a plan. We come up with a program. Now, let me just quickly say, I don't think there's anything wrong with the plan. I don't think there's anything wrong with the program. I use them. I believe in them. They're good. And I've said this a million times, and you're going to hear me say it a million times more. As long as you know me, you're going to hear me say it, because it seems like it's where we always revert back to. And that is, if you worship your plan or your program, that makes that God. And, and that's, that's an idol. And when you ask God to bless your plan, that's idolatry. That's blasphemy. The first is idolatry. The second is blasphemy. So what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to go to God and say, what do you want us to do? He may say, use that plan. 
He may say use something else, but here's what I've learned about God. Sometimes he goes, you just be obedient and then I'll let you know. Just do it and I'll show up. I'm not saying that we ought to live in ignorance. Not at all. I know a lot of different plans to talk to somebody about Christ. And, I, and, and sometimes I'm using that plan. Sometimes I'm using three or four plans at one time with the same individual. And sometimes I throw it all out the window. And God says, just do this. Did you know that? So I think you ought to put a lot of tools in your toolbox. But you ought to know the Lord. And if you know the Lord, you can be sensitive to what God's doing in that person's life. I, I remember in high school this other kid, he was a Jehovah Witness. And I guess he was a kind of a new Jehovah Witness. He just, and, and I did a lot of things wrong in high school. I, I, I tell stories and I always make myself sound good because that's what happens when you tell stories. Um, I'm not going to make myself look bad, right? But I, I, did, I did a lot of things wrong. I really did. I had a big black Bible. I mean, it would choke a mule, you know. And I carried a, here I am, five foot three, 85 pounds, redheaded, skinny, ugly as homemade sin, I told my wife, I used to have a little plaque on my bulletin board, and it was a really caricature, goofy-looking guy, but he had red hair and freckles and buck teeth, and I had all of that, big ears, and it said, I'd rather be handsome than rich. And I was like, that's the theme of my life right there, you know. And it, it was just, but I would carry that big black Bible, and I was a fundamentalist back then, man. I'd tell you, you're going to hell in a heartbeat. I'd tell you why you're going to hell and everything you're doing wrong, and you ought to quit doing all that stuff. Man, years later, and I realized what a jerk I'd been. <laughs> And how I approached people, I just, I had to repent of that. But you know what God did? I had a couple of guys come to me in my 20s and say, hey, I got saved. And I go, oh, that's great. And he said, all I could think about was you carrying that Bible in high school. And I had to say, man, I messed up. I apologize for what I did in high school. How I, how I did it, not what I did, but how I did it. And, and they said, don't worry about that. God used us good. You know, I, I felt like I had to apologize because I was so ugly and mean to people. And yet God used it anyway. And then years later, I had a very wise older man say, you know, God will use most anything. He has to. <laughs> that's, all we got, that's all he's got is us. And the only thing he can't use is if you don't even try. If you don't even give him something to work with. God will work with anything. He'll redeem your mess if you'll at least give it to him to work with it. Amen? Well, anyway, there was this kid in high school, he was, you thought I forgot, and he was a Jehovah Witness, and I began talking to him, and I was, and, and I learned a little bit about why the Bible's true, and who Jesus is, and why he's the Christ, and I was, if we want to be nice, we call it debate, but of course, I already told you I was ugly and mean and not nice, and, and so, man, I'm just ripping him, and he's had to pull out this little book to look up answers to what I was saying. I'm going, dude, you got to pull that out, you don't even know, and I, I made fun of him for not knowing. But how many of us, if somebody challenged our faith, could respond without having to go look it up? How many of us have educated ourselves to the point that we would feel confident if someone attacked our faith? That we know our faith. That's why Baptists are leaving the churches by droves and going to cults. Because at least they sound like they know what they're talking about. Remember what I said about consistency? It's easier to go to a consistent extreme to, than to remain in the center of biblical tension. It's easier to be consistently wrong than it is to walk in the Spirit. And these disciples are walking in the Spirit while being consistent. They're united in their purpose. And what was their purpose? Well, Jesus told them just before he left, didn't he? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, bring them into fellowship. 
in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I command you. And I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. We have come up with a thousand things that is not that and called it church. Because what that says is we're to help people be saved, teach them, bring them into fellowship so that we're a family together, and then teach them what they ought to be doing so that they can do it. To observe everything, not just to know it, but to do it. You follow that? And that's what these guys are doing, and thousands of people being saved. And so as Baptists, we go, man, we don't see a multitude saved. So we come up with a plan or a program instead of listening to God. But I want you to see a motivating factor in verse 13. That's why I skipped over it even though we read it. You know what it says. Because this is a striking verse. And none of the rest dare join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Here, remember where they are. They're in Solomon's portico. They're inside the, the temple complex. And, and Gentiles are over here. And the Pharisees are walking by and seeing and hearing them. And they're going... Don't get around those people. It's dangerous. Did you hear what happened last week at their church? I mean, what would happen if God gave us a New Testament killing in this church? That's what you call what happened in Ananias Sapphire, a preacher taught, by the way. That's called a New Testament killing. But God did that. They didn't put their hands on that. God did that. And, and you've you got to realize that in Acts. All the great things you see, it's an act of God, but he's using men. And so the, it's not that we have to do what they did. It's we've got to listen to God to do what he wants us to do. And the principles are there to look at. And what they did is they kept preaching Jesus as the Messiah died, buried, and rose again. Amen? They're preaching the resurrection of Christ, that he is the Christ. In fact, as we go on this passage, they get arrested again. And an angel lets them out in the middle of the night. Nobody even knows they got out. And the next day they go to give them said they're not here. And somebody comes and says, they're back over there preaching still. And when they got out of persecution and trouble, all they did was keep preaching. They kept telling people, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You better follow Him. You better listen. He is the Christ. He, you killed Him. He was buried, but God rose Him from the dead. And He's alive today. And that was their message. And they didn't get off message. They stayed on message. They had a purity and a unity. And when people saw what happened, they were like, those guys are serious, but yet they respected them. I, I've got this thing uh, in me. I, I really love our military people and the military. I, I love what they do for us. Um, I'm fascinated, the men and women that can do those things or have chosen to learn to do those things, however you want to put it. I used to say often, and I'm convinced I wasn't wrong, that God gave me diabetes just to keep me out of the military because I couldn't join because of that. Because I really wanted to. I even had some of the guys say, oh, I bet you could be a chaplain. And I, but they wouldn't let you because you, you have to depend on insulin and it's just too much hassle. And so God helped my obedience by giving me a condition so I couldn't follow inclination. And I look at our guys that, that are the best of the best, like the Green Berets and stuff. And you know what? It's amazing. But that's what I think of when I read that verse. It's like, that's some scary guys. <laughs> And we respect them, but we don't want to get, you don't want to go through what they went through to get where they are. See, you understand what I'm saying? You put that somewhere else. You see a professional athlete. Oh, look at his talent. Yeah, and you ought to see all the work he put in to exhibiting that talent. 
Another little story I heard of the concert pianist who played the piano beautifully in an hour-long concert. And someone afterwards said, I would give my life to play like that. And he said, I did. Well, what are you giving your life to be? What are you giving your life to do? Are you giving your life to Christ to, to be His and to live for Him? Or are you just hanging out? Eleven men followed Jesus for three and a half years. Judas just hung out with them. And when the Holy Spirit came, these guys turned the world upside down. Man, well, how'd they do that? How'd they drop that big bomb? They preached Jesus died, buried, and rose again as proof that he is the Christ. And that's all they did. It was simple, but it was consistent. And when you lied against what that meant, God would deal with you. And so we have to understand that. And, and I would say that in our life, we need to receive correction when it comes. The Bible says the kisses of a I mean, the wounds of a friend are, are better than the kisses of an enemy. The Bible says, let the righteous smite me. It should be a blessing, not a curse. In other words, if somebody godly cares enough about you to help you with an area in your life that's not disciplined, then maybe you ought to listen. I've never had anybody come to me and tell me something I was doing wrong, even if they were absolutely nuts and need to be taken away in a, a wagon, in a straitjacket, that I didn't say, well, God, what were you trying to tell me in that? Because guess what? None of us are perfect. Now, if you are walking with the Lord and, and God points out something in someone's life that you feel like is not where it ought to be, it is, here's not what God is not telling you to do. Not to ask other people what you ought to do about that. Not to call somebody and talk about that person about how they need to be better. It's got what, the only reason God revealed that to you is, first of all, you intercede for them, and secondly, you go to them and say, Hey, brother, sister... Here's a problem. And God has sent me just to love you and help you get through this. Now, if there's some things in the Bible about what to do if they won't listen. But that's what you have to do. You have to not only receive correction, but give loving help to someone who needs it. I don't expect God to kill people that are out of fellowship or we'd all be dead. Right? But he will bring correction in our life, and that's why Hebrews 12 is there. When God brings correction, then you need to listen to that and be obedient. In what areas? I would say in your physical body. You ought to discipline your physical body. You say, well, the Bible says it's not worth much. No, he said it's not worth a lot, but it is worth something. Paul said, I bring my body under subjection every day. He was disciplined in his body. He wouldn't let anything rule his body. He only let Christ rule his body. He didn't use his body to please himself. He used his body to glorify the Lord. And, and physical discipline is a, is, can be a mirror of other discipline in your life. I think you ought to discipline your mind. The Bible says that, that there are high and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God, but the weapons of our warfare are spiritual, which will tear down those strongholds so that we can see God clearly. And so there's a battle in our mind, and you ought to... Fill your mind with the Word of God and other good things so that you can have that battle in your mind. But, of course, we ought to be disciplined in our spirit. I've already kind of mentioned that. But we ought to be disciplined in our prayer and our Bible reading and in our fellowship together and in our giving and in our fasting and, and in our witnessing. We ought to be consistent and disciplined in our spiritual life. And what will happen, really, that's the 
out of the spiritual flows the other two. But when those are out of whack, even if you are trying to get this right and that's out of whack, it'll affect you. Exercise makes you look good in a coffin, by the way. Because you're going to die anyway. That's why it's not worth much. It won't keep you alive, but it will make you healthy enough to serve God while you are alive. Or help you do that. I, I mentioned that this is part of a longer passage, and this is one of the elements in effective evangelism. There are four other things we'll see in this, in this chapter. We'll see the power of God. We will see uh, uh, the oppression of our enemy. We will see the consistent durability of the disciples, and we'll see the results. That God keeps working, even in our pain. But this starts it off today, and so I, I just ask you, where are you with the Lord? I mean, are you consistent? Do you meet with Him daily over the Word of God? I read a lot of devotionals, but I also need to read the Word of God more than devotional books. They help, they're good. I use three, two, two other ones a day, every day. Three other ones. Got that right the first time. Three other ones every day, but those are extra. The Bible is what we need to be involved in and being involved with each other and in prayer. And we need to be disciplined so that we can witness to our neighbors, our friends, our family at work, play, where we eat, live, sleep, and play. We ought to be a disciplined followers of the Lord. And when that happens, people might look at us and go, I don't want to be part of them. They're a little too intense. But they're going to honor you, and therefore they're open to hearing what you have to say. And God will use that because that's why I started with verse 14. Multitudes are getting saved. You say, man, if we do that, nobody will want to join us. We've made it so easy, anybody can join. You can be lost and join a church. You could never do anything for the Lord and join a church. That don't mean you get to go to heaven. That doesn't mean you're following Christ. These guys were following Christ, and if you don't want to follow Christ, oh, too bad, this is what we do. So people are like, I'm afraid to join them, but man, look at what they do. And then the next verse says, and multitudes are getting saved. So obviously somebody wanted to get in on that, right? So we got it all backwards in our mind. God demands more, not less. He demands the best we have. The devotional that I read and I, I republish every day on Facebook, we, he wants us to give our utmost for his highest. And when we do that, God will bless.